Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. Did you see that report of the monkey who got loose, escaped out of his crate while at the San Antonio International Airport? We learned that he was safely captured, but it makes you wonder, what exactly happened? And where did he come from? And what was his destination? Well, we have the perfect person to fill us in on all the details. His name is Prashant Ketan, and he is CEO and General Counsel for Born Free USA. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Peter. Tell us about the facts of this episode involving the monkey, the monkey named Dawkins. Well, and, and I'm glad that we've already given given him a name um, because he is an individual, and it's and it's Dawkins. So. Dawkins was in transport, um, and I think many people saw this publicly available information. He was coming via Chicago to Texas. Uh, the way that um, primates like Dawkins are generally shipped in these situations is in a crate. Um, when we got to the airport into the cargo area, that's when we were told that Dawkins had decided to venture out of his crate, if you will. Um, and that was, of course, a surprise to us. But contrary to maybe what some of the reports were out there, this wasn't a situation where Dawkins was loose in the airport. Um, he was. There were very much eyes on him at all times. Our folks were um, were actually back in the cargo area along with airport authorities. We tried to get him back into the crate and into a safe transportation. Um, carrier, when we weren't able to do that, then we have uh, our vet come out and we had um, San Antonio Zoo folks come out and together we worked to um, essentially dart Dawkins so that we could get him to calm down, put him in a carrier. And then I would say within an hour or two, he was on his way to the primate sanctuary. That evening he was there just like he was scheduled to be and uh, the next morning, he woke up, and it was almost as if that that episode never happened. Well, that's great. Uh, are you able to reveal where he came from? Uh, one of the reports said uh, it was sort of hush hush. Yeah, and unfortunately, part of the arrangement we have when we take in primates, which we encourage, uh, we encourage doing that. We want to do that. We want primates to be retired from facilities, but. Part of that arrangement is that we not um, we would never disclose wh- where the sources are, and it's and it's an arrangement that I want to respect because I want to continue to get primates retired and sent to the sanctuary. That makes perfect sense. Tell us a bit about the history of the Born for USA Primate Sanctuary. When and how did it begin? I'd, I'd love to talk about that. So. Animal Protection Institute is an organization that is celebrating its 50-year anniversary actually this year. Uh, And Born Free USA and Animal Protection Institute merged together about 15 years ago. When we did that merger, we took in the primate sanctuary that's in South Texas. It has been around for, gosh, it's probably been 20 or so years now. It's the largest primate sanctuary in the country. Uh, we have about 500 to 550 primates. These are all rescues. They come either from zoos, research labs, um, from people who kept them as exotic pets, all situations where we, we want to get them out of those situations, have them come to the sanctuary where we try to have them be as free as possible. We have about 200 acres. It's a very isolated part of South Texas. Uh, and for the most part, and as much as possible, we try to have 
um, the residents, as we call them, roam as freely as possible. What do you do to make life for them as natural as possible and to keep them as happy as possible? Well, and, and for each individual, it, it really depends on their, their situation. So we, we try to factor in um, where are they coming from, what was their situation before. So, for example, one of the first things that we want them to do is get acclimated to the new environment, which can take, depending on what their situation was before, it can take, it can be quick, it can, it can take weeks to do. Once they've done that, then the goal is to try to introduce them to others of their species. And that in and of itself is, is a big thing for a lot of our residents because in, in some of their prior situations, they never walked on grass. Um, they never interacted with other, with other monkeys. They were forced to basically interact with humans. And it, our environment is completely different. Our, our approach is we're going to let them be. We will intervene only if necessary. So if there's a medical issue, we, we will intervene. Um, when we take in a primate who's come from a really bad situation and we know we need to monitor them medically or psychologically, we intervene in that situation. But otherwise, the goal is to really try to get them acclimated. And once they're acclimated, to let them be as free as possible, to let them socialize with um, others of their kind. So, for example, we have this one area that's it is an enclosure in the sense that there's a perimeter around it, but um, it is, gosh, I don't know, it's probably 50 or 60 acres of land that we have not, um, we've not done anything to. So it's natural land that they're on, and there are probably 200 or so primates on that land. And just like in the wild, they have formed groups um and and that's how they live and and we don't want to interfere with that we want them to be as if they would in nature so of course as part of the mission there are no tour groups or routine visitors and and that's very important to us peter it's it's one of the things that when i when i talk um to folks about zoos and sanctuaries from my perspective and from born for usa's perspective what makes a sanctuary like ours a positive thing is that we're not open to the public. We don't do tours or anything like that. Now, that doesn't mean that um, someone like yourself who's visited and we'd love to have you come back. And there are other instances where we will have um, we will have someone come to the property. But that's not our focus. We're not we're not seeking to open this up to the public. We don't want to be a zoo. We really want this to be as little interaction and interference with um, between humans and, and the primates, the non-human primates. How many staff are needed to keep it running? <laughs> Pro- probably need a lot more than we actually have, but uh, we have a sanctuary director, and then we've got two sort of second-level managers, and then after that um, we have about six or seven caregivers, maintenance folks, uh, and then we have an on-site vet, which is, I mean, it seems like a small thing, but it's actually a huge thing, particularly given where we are in Texas, to have someone on site who can do uh, medical checkups, who can perform basic, um, serve, the, serve the basic medical needs that, that, that a lot of our residents have, as opposed to each time something comes up for us to have to go to a vet. And, and it's not as simple as it might seem to find a vet in, in that sort of remote part of Texas. So in total, it's probably about 
10 people at the sanctuary. The sanctuary, of course, is a division or department within the Born for USA organization, which has about 25 to 30 people total. So a lot of the operations and the marketing and, and development, fundraising, all that work is done outside of the sanctuary by, um, by the rest of staff. And I imagine keeping all the residents fed with their favorite foods is a, a quite an, a challenge and an expense. Well, it's, it's a huge expense. I mean, and it's uh, when we, we get the question of, well, how can we help? Um, I mean, honestly, the biggest way to help is to support us with, our, with the care of the animals. And food is probably um, one of, if not the biggest expenses we have just because of the sheer number. The other thing that you, that you have to remember is that a lot of the, the monkeys that we take in are coming from situations which require them to have medication. And medication, which for us humans might seem fairly simple enough, it's not that simple to feed uh, a rhesus macaque or a baboon medication. Uh, and so we often have to come up with creative and clever ways to feed them medication, which means spending more money on particular types of food so that we can do that. Uh, and so that that is really kind of the biggest cost that we have in addition to when there are medical um, issues, if, if we ever need to do operations or get veterinary equipment, those kinds of things, that's also a significant cost for us. Let's go back to Dawkins Transport. Do you get the feeling that perhaps he was not packed up in a safe manner? Did someone make a mistake? Well, it's about as routine as it is to routine, as routine as it is to transport a primate on a plane, but we've done this before, uh, and this is a method of transportation for, for animals, including primates. Something did go wrong. Um, I, I'm hesitating, and you might be hearing hesitation in my voice, in part because I, I am a little disappointed in the lack of follow-up that's happened by the airline and whomever else was involved. Um, the only the only entity that's actually reached out to us is the airport, and they've, San Antonio Airport has been fantastic, uh, very responsive, wanting to help, uh, wanting to raise funds for Born for USA, and 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 saying all the right things and doing all the right things. But I've heard nothing from the airline, which is a little surprising because this seems like the type of thing that something went wrong. We were all very fortunate that nothing happened. Everyone actually worked together. And and the net result was that Dawkins did come to the Warner USA sanctuary unharmed. But we should find out what happened wrong so that it doesn't happen again, because animals will get transported by crate again in the future. And we should all be interested in knowing why that happened and how we prevent it. And I have I've received no news, no reach out, nothing from the airline, which um, is disappointing. Well, we're all glad it uh, ended up the way it did. Prashant, I'm going to repost some of my photos from my visit, but there's so much more on the website. It's a wonderful resource, and I would encourage everyone to visit, well, both websites. Why don't you give us both websites, please? So, www bornfreeusa.org um, that actually is the main website and that has an, a link within it to the um, primate sanctuary and so I and we're actually redoing the website and it's really thrilled when it's actually done but for now that is the best place to go there's ways to look at all the wonderful photos of not just Dawkins 
but also the other 500 or so primates that are at the sanctuary. And if any of your um, your listeners are interested in supporting us or giving, there's ways in which you can support us as well. Prashant K10, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Peter. And, and again, the invitation is always open for you to come out to the sanctuary again. Thanks a lot. I will take you up on that sometime. More with animals today after the break. Welcome back. A few years ago, I had a very interesting talk with the state attorney, Frances Carlisle, and she had some interesting things to say about Leona Helmsley and her dog, Trouble, after which we moved on to other topics. Let's listen now. Let's talk about the queen of the mean, Leona Helmsley, and her dog, Trouble. She left millions to her dog. Can you tell us about that? Uh, Leona Helmsley, who loved dogs, I have to say, I give her a lot of credit for that. She set up a pet trust for her little dog. She had a little, I think it was a Maltese named Trouble, and she put $12 million into that trust for the dog. There was a lot of publicity about that, a lot of negative publicity about it, and uh, it actually was not a good idea to put that much money in because the dog started receiving death threats and dog-napping threats, and it was so bad that... um, The little dog had to be hustled out of her Connecticut home and flown to a secret location under an assumed name. (laughs) And then they had to hire round-the-clock security uh, to take care of the dog, which was very expensive. Anyway, um, so, I mean, it was, was not a good idea to put that amount of money in the trust. And, in fact, the amount was reduced by the court to $2 million. And it wasn't reduced because the court said it was too much. It was actually reduced because the executors realized that there would be a, about a $5 million tax, estate tax bill if they left it at $12 million. So they reduced it to $2 million, and that reduced the estate tax bill to zero. And $2 million, of course, is plenty of money to take care of one, one little dog. But I tell my clients, let's figure out the amount. Let's leave a modest amount, a reasonable amount for the care of animals. You don't need to, to leave so much money. Uh, we want to make sure we have plenty for whatever is needed for the animal, but we don't need to leave millions in a pet trust. And a lot of that money went to protecting the dog. <laughs> yes, it ended up the round-the-clock security was the big the big ticket item in that trust. Think and the dog did pass away in 2010, and I think it had a pretty good life until it did pass away. But she left the bulk of her estate to the Helmsley Charitable Trust, which was a huge, billions of dollars went to a charitable trust. And she actually had a mission statement that she wanted a lot of that money to go for um, dogs, to rescue dogs and help dogs. But the trustees have gotten around that, and they... Uh, They're using it for general charitable purposes. We've been talking about estate planning for the continuing care of a pet after the death of the owner. But should there be any preparation for emergencies, such as the hospitalization of the owner of the animal? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, For one thing, I have all my clients sign a power of attorney so that the agent they appoint 
um, has access to funds to pay for veterinary care and other expenses of caring for the animals if the owner is capacitated for any length of time. And also, I tell my clients to make sure that someone has authority to enter the house and feed and care for the animals uh, on, on an emergency basis or maybe even a long-term basis because if someone's hospitalized, then they're going to need that care immediately. Um, a lot of my clients carry a card in their wallets with the name and address of the person who's going to care for those dogs and cats so they can be contacted, that person can be contacted and start to care for those animals immediately. So definitely you need a lot of planning for the periods of incapacity. Such a great idea. Francis, friends of ours just rescued a middle-aged African tortoise, and this tortoise will probably outlive them both since she might live to 150 years or more. What are the challenges in estate planning when you're talking about animals with very long lives? Well, there are a lot of challenges, and some of my clients have parrots, which can live 80 or 90 years, and, of course, even horses live, you know, 30, 40 years. So there are animals that can live a long time, and they present uh, a little bit of a challenge. Um, You can create a pet trust for these animals, of course, but um, the worry is that that the animals will outlive the trustee, who is the one, you know, in charge of their care. But the, the key is to leave, to have several alternate trustees named in the trust document. So, you know, if this person passes away or resigns, then, then this other person takes, takes the trustee's place and so on. And you would want at least some younger um, people listed there. And then maybe a mechanism for an alternate trustee, if all of the named trustees have passed away, then you could say, um, oh, for example, you could say that the board of directors of this charity uh, is going to select the right person to be trustee. Uh, if there's no trustee acting. So maybe it would be with the turtle, maybe it would be a a charity that that specializes in that species of animals. Uh, But there are are creative ways to make sure that those animals are cared for for life. Alternatively, um, some of clients decide that they want, instead of the pet trust, or in addition to the pet trust, they will want the animal to go to an animal sanctuary for life because there are sanctuaries that take care of, say, parrots, uh, and other different species of animals, and um, there's sanctuaries that have been in existence a long time and and that are well run and the animal can go and live at the sanctuary for life. Uh, you do want to check them out though to make sure it's good and it's well funded and it's going to to last and be around a long time before you uh, make that commitment to send your animal to a sanctuary after you die. So, Francis, do you want to share with us a recent case that you handled? Sure. Um, one that really uh, tugged at my heartstrings was uh, the case I heard about, uh, a case of these two elderly women uh, who had been rescuing cats all their lives in Brooklyn. And they had a big house, and it was filled with cats, and they were you know, doing a great job taking care of all these cats. I, there might have been 40 or 50 cats, but both of the women were sick. And um, one was uh, in the hospital or in a nursing home, and the other one was uh, going into the hospital very seriously ill. And they had made no plan for these animals. So a neighbor alerted me, and I was able to quickly do some documents. And they were, they were competent to sign these documents. 
have money go um, to a really good rescue charity upstate that had a little house on their property. And the arrangement was made that this the neighbor actually knew all about this charity and helped with this greatly, that when when they passed away, all these animals would go up to this charity, and they would all live together in this little house. And fortunately, there was enough money uh, that these two ladies had that uh, all of this could be paid for, and the charity wouldn't be out money, and they would have enough to care for these animals for the rest of their lives. And so um, that was something that was done that if it had not been done, uh, there would have been, you know, close to 50 cats, um, a lot of them elderly, with really nowhere to go and no money to help in their placement. So I was glad I was able to do it. So, you know, with this planning, everything was fine. Without the planning, it would have been a disaster. Very good story. Francis, what is the most important thing you could tell our listeners who love their companion animals? Well, the the important thing is to start thinking about uh, what a plan for your animals. Take the first step and 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 think about what you would want to happen to your animals, and then seek out um, somebody, an attorney, who can help you implement that plan, somebody who has a concern for animals and an interest in this area of the law, um, and, and then you will be doing right by your animals. Trusts and the state's attorney, Francis Carlisle, thank you for giving us this important information. Thank you. Welcome back. A recently proposed rule change by the Department of the Interior is now up for public comments. And when you hear what is at stake, I'm sure you're going to want to take action. This rule change concerning cruel hunting practices on federal land in Alaska would be a regrettable move in the wrong direction. The Humane Society of the United States is very involved in this particular issue, and I am very pleased to welcome Wendy Kefover, National Carnivore Protection Manager at the Humane Society of the United States. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks, Peter. I'm so uh, happy to be on the show. So there's a lot of concern and discussion about this. Can you please explain the proposal? Yes. So the Park Service is proposing a rule change that would overturn uh, a rule that was implemented in 2015 that would protect some of America's most rare and iconic native carnivores, such as wolves and brown bears, also known as grizzly bears, from really cruel hunting methods in a misguided attempt to turn America's national parks and preserves into game farms on Alaska. So essentially what's happening is the Alaska Board of Game, they've been doing this program, this intensive predator control program for decades uh, to eliminate predators to grow more species like moose and caribou for hunters. But it doesn't work because if you kill all the predators, you get too many prey. And in fact, a 20-year study shows that uh, the 40-mile caribou herd has grown beyond the land's carrying capacity, and now that herd members are dying uh, from starvation. So it's it's really terrible in a number of ways. So um, what they're proposing is to allow 
hunters, trophy hunters and trappers to come in and kill wolves and coyotes at den sites mm. uh, at the time when they're the most vulnerable because, you know, they provision their pups and they take care of the mother and they're very vulnerable at that time. Killing sleeping black bears, including mothers with dependent cubs with the aid of artificial light. Killing black bears and brown bears over bait and hounding black bears. And finally, um, allowing hunters to kill swimming caribou with the aid of motorboats. Now, the reports state that this would overturn Obama-era regulations. Uh, what was, when were these instated and what was present before the Obama-era regulations came on? Give us a little history of yeah. uh, how it's going. Oh, sure. So in 2015, um, the National Park Service promulgated uh, a rule that said you can't do all these terrible things, kill wolves and coyotes at the den, kill sleeping black bears while they're hibernating, um, killing bears over bait, hounding black bears, and killing uh, swimming caribou with with motorboats on national park and preserve lands in Alaska. And now the Secretary of Interior, Ryan Zinke, is kind of leading the charge to undo these rules basically at the behest of special interest groups such as Safari Club International and some other local uh, Alaska groups who want to see Alaska's uh, special uh, federal public lands turned into a game farm so that they can just kill everything. And before the uh, Obama era, what was the situation? Um, You know, uh, the federal government has under congressional authority to um, maintain and protect these wildlife on their federal lands. And so this was just uh, asserting uh, what the power that Congress has given them. Mm-hmm. And even under um, rules that allow for subsistence hunting, you know, that, you know, there's special provisions to allow for subsistence hunting for rural Alaskans, but they didn't want to see, you know, trophy hunters coming in and, um, so they they affirmed those rules in 2015, and uh, and and banned these practices. So and then so these rules are being rolled back. Last year, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, just with this rulemaking, they're gonna they're gonna attempt to roll back these 2015 rules. Last year, the state of Alaska and Safari Club International sued the National Park Service and the Humane Society intervened. Can you explain what happened there and how that's related to what's happening now? Yeah, so um, they sued uh, the Park Service over these rules, and the Humane Society of the United States and other groups um, intervene in that litigation to say that these rules need to be put into place in order to conserve and protect these amazing lands and these, these special wildlife. And was there a conclusion reached there? No, that litigation is still ongoing, as a matter of fact. Besides the incredibly cruel hunting methods that you described earlier that could uh, could be permitted, there also are economic reasons to oppose the rule change, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. Alaska is one of the biggest destinations in the United States um, for wildlife watching tourism. And... According to data from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, wildlife watching brings $2 billion annually to local rural economies, five times more than what hunters spend. 
So wildlife watching is, is really, really important. The Humane Society presented data showing that Alaskans oppose this rule change or at least oppose the cruel hunting methods that would uh, probably occur. But Americans all over oppose this sort of thing, don't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been studies and surveys that show that uh, Americans really want wildlife protected and conserved and they don't particularly want to see them hunt, hunted. And by far, most people don't want to see animals trophy hunted. That is, you know, killing an animal so that you can dismember it, so you can display body parts to kind of show off your hunting prowess, so to speak. So there's there's been, ever since Cecil, the African lion who was lured out of a, a game, you know, a game park in, uh, a wildlife park in Africa and killed sort of illegally by uh, Walter Palmer from Minnesota. I mean, there's just been global outrage about trophy hunting. And that's what this is about. This is about allowing trophy hunters to come in and kill some of America's most iconic uh, wildlife, so wolves and brown bears. And by the way, these animals did not evolve to be hunted. They don't do well when they're heavily persecuted. And it's it's quite easy to extirpate them. That is, you know, drive them towards extinction with with these radical, heavy-handed hunting methods that are also just insanely cruel. So there's no valid conservation goal here? Uh, no, absolutely not. And to kind of explain, so there's a, a national park and preserve called Yukon Charlie Rivers um, in Alaska. And there were two studies just published last year, and they were 20-year-long studies. One involved um, looking at the 40-mile caribou herd, which was um, the, the herd had been decimated because of human hunters, actually. But in order to, to get the herd numbers up, so the Alaska Game and Board both reduced human hunting and then began this uh, very expensive um, program to kill all the wolves outside of that preserve. And they did it so intensely that they actually harmed the wolves inside the preserve. So anytime a wolf went outside the preserve, it would be killed. If it was an alpha wolf, that is, you know, one of the two mated pairs, um, you can cause that whole pack to disband mm. and that would leave, you know, yearling or pups to yearling wolves or, the, or pups to uh, not be able to survive because they need a whole pack in order to survive. And so, you know, um, what they do is they go in and they aerial gun right at the boundaries of, of the park. So now what the new rule would do would allow trophy hunters to continue sort of that kind of program. Of course, they won't be able to do aerial gunning, but they can kill whole packs of wolves at the den site, which is just terrible. And then if you think about brown bears, um, it, it takes a really long time for brown bears to reproduce. A female brown bear only produces cubs about every three or four years. And she has, you know, just uh, small litters of cubs between, you know, one and three bears typically. Um, and not all those cubs are going to survive. And she doesn't start reproducing until she's between like four and six years old. So this is a very slow to reproduce species. And to, you know, to have these heavy handed hunting regimes on the grizzly bears is it's not only is it cruel, it's just uh, it's a great way to wipe them out. Mm. It's just not sustainable. 
So now is the time for individuals to post their comments. Is that the most effective thing that we can do? And uh, what should we do? Yes. So um, people can go to regulations.gov, search for hunting and trapping in national preserves, Alaska. Or they can just go to Kitty's blog, which you can link to your website and post their comments there. And once they get there, what should they say? You've got a sample. Uh, can people cut and paste that? Does it matter? Does it should be should it be an original uh, composition? What should they say? Yeah, it would be good if people can uh, use their own words because if if they sound exactly like someone else's, then the the comments won't get counted. But you know, I think if people can just speak from the heart and say that they want, I mean, these wildlife, even though they live in Alaska and they belong to us all because you and I pay federal taxes and those federal taxes are the habitat that these wildlife depend on. And so they don't belong just to local people or and they don't belong just to the trophy hunters. They belong to all of us. And so, uh, you know, it's not we don't want cruelty to these wildlife. We want these uh, wildlife ban- managed um, the, in the most humane way. We also want them protected and conserved for future generations. It's just folly to um, to kill these animals, these slow to reproduce animals in, in such large numbers. They could disappear. So everyone, go online and post your comments right away. Now's the time. And I want to thank you, Wendy, Wendy Kiefovert, who is the National Carnivore Protection Manager at the Humane Society of the United States. Really appreciate you coming on and explaining that to us. Oh, thank you for this opportunity, Peter. And uh, yes, everyone, please go post the comments. The wildlife need you. Yes. Okay, more with animals today after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Lori. Peter. Uh, I'm feeling a little annoyed today. Why? Uh, I don't know. I saw... uh, Maybe I shouldn't be annoyed. It was just like a dog and dog's guardian or owner, and dog's got multicolored toenail polish on all the toenails, all different colors. And I'm like, that's annoying. Should I be annoyed by that? I don't know. It's probably not hurting the dog, but... Why did they do it? Yeah, I don't know. I have a multicolored toenail dog. You know what they call that? No. Dog potticures. Oh, boy. Well, that annoys me. Actually, there are a lot of things that annoy me about pet owners and guardians and their their dogs. They're my pet peeves about pets. Do you have anything that annoy you that people do with their animals? Oh, boy. (laughs) Where do we start? Where do we start? Well, let me just... Uh, continue this thought. And I guess I'm not that annoyed by the nail polish, except for I think it's very silly. But I saw a photo online recently of a tattooed 
dog. Okay. No, that's bad. So that's really. I don't okay, like. Okay, we don't. We don't like that. Right. So that's like, not even a pet peeve. That's like you're crazy, horrible person. Okay. So, what annoys you about people and their dogs? Number one pet peeve, I would say breeders. Oh, like you, the whole class of people. Yeah. Oh, breeders. Yeah. Okay. Like, Number two. Uh huh. Breeders who say they love dogs. Oh. Right. You, you mean the ones who are uh, selling them? I yeah. Mean, it sort of gets intertwined, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. I love dogs. But if you love dogs, then you wouldn't be breeding when you mm. know that millions of dogs in our shelters are dying every year, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Oh, Number three. Wait, you have oh. to keep the breed alive. I'm yeah, just doing yeah, that. I know. Uh, yeah. Send, uh, Number okay. three. Okay. Breeders. <laughs> breeders that rescue dogs. Oh. Because then they're not being consistent. Yeah. And they're using that as an excuse so they could breed dogs, right? Oh, I rescue, so it's okay. I'll breed yeah. more dogs. Oh, I've heard that dozens of times. Okay, I'll get off the subject of breeders <laughs> okay. now. Okay. You know what really bothers me is when you see the dogs on the hot asphalt, and you know that it's got to be hurting the paws and the owner or the guardian or whoever's walking them is just oblivious or doesn't care. They wouldn't even walk barefoot themselves on the asphalt and it's just too hot and dogs like hopping and you just know they're uncomfortable. It's just so Oh, stupid. not only that, I mean, it can cause first, second degree burns. And I know. The I know. skin can come off and bloody paws. And it's, I know. It's just, you're right. They are oblivious to that, similar to leaving their dogs in the car. On a hot day or a warm day, right? Yes, I know you've... That's uh, another pet peeve. You've... Uh, opined about that oh you better believe it <laughs> yeah, more than I opined know. i know uh you love the opportunity to break into uh, love it yes love it yes you're two hammers in your car at all times <laughs> all ready to do it <laughs> you know what else really bugs me is just when people want to buy these popular dogs like a dog breed gets popular right like when the obamas got their portuguese water dog and then all the breeders start breeding these animals and everyone wants them as if anyone cares and uh the dalmatian deal after uh, after one of those dalmatian movies yes peter as we know research shows that, that the release of films featuring dogs can influence the popularity of certain breeds for up to a decade yeah, boy. and the more successful the film the greater the impact like you said we saw a huge surge in the dalmatian purchases after the movie 101 dalmatians came out in 1985 And similarly, sales of Collies rose by 40% after the release of Lassie Come Home. That was in 1943. And the popularity of Old English Sheepdogs increased 100-fold after 1959 Disney film The Shaggy Dog. Now, I read the impact was more marked in the early 20th century when there was less competition for television and the Internet and other films. Scientists have warned such films could be bad for dogs, as these popular breeds often have the most inherited disorders. You know, I don't see how this phenomenon ends, unfortunately. But how about something a little bit more benign? What do you think about the folks who dress their dogs up in costumes like around Halloween or or the other holidays you You know i think it's okay as long as it's safe for the dogs and they use common sense right okay i guess i can't get too upset about that some of the costumes are really cute they are cute i know okay okay oh i have a good one shoot biggest pet peeve one of my biggest pet peeves testicles on dogs yeah okay right yes okay also i've heard you uh uh scream when you see like dogs in the back of pickup trucks oh i know and they're unrestrained and they're just like you know, guys driving along and got big dog in the back and, oh, don't worry, he's safe back there. It really annoys me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is legit, okay? Right. How about the dog on a lap when you're driving? I know. Oh, well, it's only a little dog. And you see these old people with their handicap stickers with their dog on the lap, yeah, right? Yeah, As if they need more distraction. Right, exactly. I know, I know. How about clogs on a dog? We have a Clog. neighbor who puts clogs on their dog when yeah, they walk. I know. Like, is this supposed to be... A fashion thing? Or, or is a it hot to, weather thing? Yeah, or is it I, supposed to protect their dogs? The dog clearly, clearly is not happy about wearing these shoes. You see the little high-stepping maneuvers? It, it's just laughable, actually. I don't get it. And in our neighborhood, we often walk past a house, and there's a gate, and you can see a dog behind the gate just looking out, so lonely. Oh, I know which and dog like, you're talking about. And we're like, oh, this dog would love to play or say hi to our dogs. And we even once encountered the owner of the house and asked him if his dog wants any company. He said, no, looks like not interested. Right. He's fine. Yeah. He's oh, fine. It's just no. so, it's heartbreaking almost. Gives you his little sad, lonely eyes. Yeah. The dog wants a little attention. You better believe it. Yeah. What do you think about people who bike with their dog? Oh, that's a whole interesting topic there. I will say occasionally it seems okay. The biker seems to have a clue and the dog understands how the game is played, but much too often I see out of control and an accident waiting to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, most of the time, I would say. Yeah. I mean, unless and, you actually really train your dog to do this well, I don't see how it can and, be And safe. it's a dog who can do it, you know? It's right, got to be exactly. just the right. The other thing that bugs me ab about cyclists, and nothing against people on bikes, but please, if you are riding and you see someone walking with their dogs, give the dog and the person some space, okay? Right, right. Because the dog is on a leash, and before you know it, they can be four feet or five feet closer to you than you thought. So you got to give them some space, yeah, So many times we're walking our dogs, and these bikers come out of nowhere down the hill two feet from where yeah. we are. Yeah. Lori, I was sort of in a bad mood starting the segment, but you're pretty excited now too, aren't you? I like being annoyed with people and pet peeves. <laughs> How about the elderly person who adopts a young dog? Yeah. Is that annoying or what? I hope that phenomenon is fading. You see it once in a while. It's just not that smart. And finally, the mother of all pet peeves, right? The mother, the grandmother, not picking up after your dog. Yeah. Right? And that's like a basic thing. So you just got to do that. Now, around here, unfortunately, we are blamed for other people's poo once in a while. We sure are. And that's not correct, just because we're known as dog people and dog advocates. So uh, they see poop on a lawn, they automatically say, that must be Lori and I Peter's dogs. I don't know why they think that. I know. Okay. We've been falsely accused many times, right? You know, any time someone sees me walking around, it's usually with a bag in my hand. Right. Filled bag. We are the best poop picker-uppers around. So... Everyone should be like us. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think that's enough complaining for one segment of I the show. I feel so much better. <laughs> Me too. Okay. Good. I'm glad I turned your mood around. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.